Bam, we're live. Some shows I'm I'm more nervous before we go live. And some shows like this one, like wait. That was said in the wrong order. Some shows I'm nervous when they start. Some shows I'm nervous before they start. This show I was nervous before it started. So now that it started, I'm not nervous. Ah, it didn't come out exactly right either. Shit. Oh, good morning. 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the North American continent, which is a place we call California. Sits on the Pacific Ocean. And today, we have Asim Malhorta. I, I don't even know if I pronounced his name right. Well, that's the first thing we're going to find out. He's a cardiologist. He's written two books as of recently. One of them is called A Statin-Free Life, which is why he thought he was coming on. And then last night, he realized I was having him on because of a book he wrote two years ago in 2020. It's called The 21-Day Immunity Plan. Oh, I wonder. I better make sure he got the link. That's always. Uh-oh, here. Here we go. Here's the Oh, yeah, he got it. He should be here any minute. Uh, we see eye to eye on this 21-day immunity thing. I said it from day one. Uh, early, 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 early. Remember that cruise ship where there were, there were the people trapped on it? And and I think it was off the coast of Japan. And The Chinese were talking about uh, coronavirus very early on, and they were basically... The data coming out of there was is that old people and smokers were dying from this thing. And here we are two years later. And I've always believed that you could fight it off yourself if you just stopped eating sugar. I told my dad this morning, I was like, hey, we're going to have this guest on. He's so awesome. It's a doctor out of Europe, out of the UK. His name's Asim Malhorta. Did I pronounce that right? That is correct, Seven. Oh, awesome. Uh-oh, I have the wrong mic on here. And my dad goes, oh, why is he so great? Does he agree with you? <laughs> That's my dad. And uh, I said, you know, I said, no, I don't think I don't think he does agree with me on a bunch of stuff. And as I read his book, there's a bunch of stuff that we don't agree on. Some really, really big things. But there's one thing we 100 percent, I think, agree on. And the scene will set me straight if I'm wrong here and I miscategorize him. We do believe that by not by eliminating added sugar and what he calls uh, ultra-refined carbohydrates, ultra-processed foods, that you will be at the 95-yard line of your, uh, of, your, of your journey to health and that you will see um, big differences very quickly. Seven, I'm just going to get some earphones just because of the sound. You do you, brother. Seconds. You do you. Yep, yep, you do you. Okay, easy show. Man, look at that background. I think I've seen... I don't think that's his home, but he still found a very uh, smart background. Isn't that nice? Globe, stack of books. Oh, look at that stack. Is that his new book? His new book is called A Statin-Free Life. Um, I'm going to – I purchased it last night, and I'm going to read it, and uh, we'll circle back around and have a scene back on. I think it gets released in February of 2022 in the United States, although I bought the audio book on um, – bought the audiobook on iTunes last night and it's called the statin free life will do you see that if you will if you're on the show feel free to bring up any images if you go to Amazon you type in a Sima horta oh it's not horta it's hotra a Sima hotra 
Tra. Here we go. I can hear you better now. Okay. Asim Malhotra. Malhotra, yeah. Does H O T hot? So you need to remember in the middle. Malhotra. Asim. Oh, man, there's so many places. I really screwed up with you. I have too many notes. Have you ever done that? You go into a meeting with too many notes? Um, I usually store them in my head, but yeah, often there's a lot of things that don't get covered. That's why you're a doctor and I'm a <laughs> podcaster. You store them in your head. Asim, did you hear what I said about added sh- about where, where our paths align, about added sugar and ultra-refined uh, carbohydrates? Absolutely, Seven. And also, I think one thing that you mentioned about some things we disagree on, I mean, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, how many people do you actually know, even your own family or friends, where you agree 100% on everything? It's, I don't know anyone like that. Right. But I think what's important, and I uh, often uh, these days cite philosophers such as Socrates, who said true wisdom only comes from dialogue. Uh, and often what you think you disagree on, actually you don't. It's just misunderstandings of each other. Um, so if there is anything in particular that you feel strongly about, let's, let's, let's feel free to discuss it as well. I mean, uh, it doesn't just have to be all about um, what we agree on. I think there's some big issues here in terms of how we manage chronic disease, how we manage diet-related disease, what are the best solutions. I think ultimately we all want the same thing, right? Yes. We want, we want the opportunities for everybody, or at least people, give people the best opportunity to live um, you know, healthy, meaningful lives uh, rooted in, um, you know, uh, good physical and mental health and, uh, and having uh, sustained, authentic happiness. That's yeah. what we all want, right? So I'm sure uh, people have different ideas about how we get there, but I, I think getting there needs discussion rather than um, uh, what's happening in the world today. A lot of hostility, a lot of uh, division, a lot of confusion, um, and it's, it's sending us the wrong direction, Seven. I think what's going on in the world right now is just crazy. And uh, at the root of that is basically the fact that we are losing um, access to the truth and our capacity for empathy. And those two things combined are, um, are basically catastrophic if they, if, they go to, you know, if they go in for too long. So anyway, we, we can discuss that further as we, as we go through the podcast. Yeah, fantastic intro. Asim is a cardiologist. Home for him is the uh, United Kingdom. He has been a you've been a doctor for almost twenty years, or are you? 20 yeah, years? I qualified two thousand one, so over wow. twenty years. Wow, congratulations! Uh, Thank and you. I've oh, made it. <laughs> uh, you just said something that I wasn't going to bring up until the end of the podcast, but I will bring it up right now. In his book, uh, the twenty-one day immunity plan, um, and this is not the major premise of the book, but this is one of the many, many, many gems in there. He says. Meaning relationships is the biggest predictor of happiness. And what's funny is, is that's not what the book's about. But I just realized I have three little boys, two four-year-olds and a six-year-old. And I spend almost every day, as much of every day as I can with them. And they are the three most meaningful relationships that I've ever had in my life. And I am also the happiest I've ever been in my life. Granted, I'm a happy person almost always anyway. But man, I was like, wow, he's really right. I have these three really deep uh, uh, you, you, you know, if, it, when when you're willing to get up at three in the morning to wipe someone's butt, uh, it's like it, it, with with no with no remorse or uh, you know what I mean, with no resentment. I was like, even sometimes I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> about myself, I'm like, I don't even recognize this guy. So thank you for throwing that gem in there about relationships. Absolutely. Do you have um, kids? I don't, not yet. No, uh, seven. So um, I do love kids. I want to have kids. But um, I haven't uh, um, met the right person yet uh, for somebody that, you know, that, that I feel that I'm ready to, to settle down 
but yeah, no, I do love kids. I, I have, um, in fact, I'm over in California right now. I'm staying in Mountain View with my cousin and his wife, and they have three kids who are effectively my uh, my niece and two nephews. And um, you know, the, yeah, they they bring a lot of joy into my life. Just just hanging out with them, just you know, doing fun things with them, watching movies, playing basketball, you know, having having uh, sharing lots of laughter. Um, yeah, absolutely. Are you are you their cool uncle? I saw that you took your nephew to school on your Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm I'm the cool uncle. Maybe, possibly. Uh, do I, they de- have... I, def- I definitely engage with them. Like to have fun with them. Do they have a British accent? No. So they're 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 brought up here. They're they're um, so I'm in Mountain View right now. So they're they're from um, they grew up and they were born in in the U.S. And it's your brother's kids or your daughter or your sister? No, my kids? cousin, my first cousin, Kapil. Okay. Um, wow. And uh, he's like a double cousin uh, because we have relations on both sides of the family. My my mum's brother. Just just to premise this, there's no suggestion of incest here so just let me just put that out there <laughs> for you my mom's brother married my dad's sister so okay. um couple is the younger brother of of uh of my uncle and aunt and uh, therefore we have you know we're effectively brothers basically although he's my first cousin and what so, what ethnicity are you uh, indian origin seven yeah india yeah i it, was born actually born in delhi i was born in india um but i was about a year old when my parents moved to the uk uh, and I grew up in Manchester, in the north of England. And um, yeah, I've been in London now for the last 13 years. And when was your first time visiting California? Oh, wow. Uh, a long time ago. I've had very, you know, um, we've kept very good relations with extended family members. So I've been, I probably came here first when I was maybe six or seven years old. Okay. And I've pretty much come every other year since then. So I've been, I visited California, particularly the Bay Area, San Francisco probably more than any other city that I've visited in the world and traveled to. And I've traveled to a lot of places. Yeah. Um, there, and sorry, it was actually a loaded question. And you probably, you've seen a, um, an enormous change in the Bay Area in, in terms of the uh, um, Pakistani and Indian communities in Mountain View. I mean, that, you're probably 20 miles north of me. I'm, I'm over in Santa Cruz. Yeah. And that that whole community, I mean, uh, when when tech exploded, you know, pa- uh, Palo Alto, Mountain View, San Jose, I mean, those communities just flourished there. Like, do you, you must feel you do you feel at home there? You're like, wow, I'm with my, I'm with my people. <laughs> well, it's interesting actually, because uh, you know we have a very large South Asian community in um, in the UK, uh-huh. and uh, relative to that, uh, it's difficult to say whether there's, oh. there's a, a big difference. I mean, and that's also partly because. Um, in the 70s, there was a huge shortage of doctors in the National Health Service. So a lot of doctors like my parents came over to work in the National Health Service. And it's estimated now probably about a quarter to a fifth um, of you know, about 25% of NHS employees, specifically more with, with doctors, are from the uh, Indian subcontinent. So we have a huge, uh, and of course, there's a, the historical links between you know, British Empire and, and uh, India got its independence in 1947. So there's all those links that have been there, um, you know, historically. Uh, and, and on that, you know, um, the, the most popular British food, British food, is uh, an Indian dish called chicken tikka masala. You go to an English pub, it's more likely than not they will be serving that as, uh, on their menu. So <laughs> I felt I felt my uh, salivary glands fire up when you said that. Uh, and, and I, and I want to say something about culture here. Those people... Uh, uh, Indians, um, uh, Pakistanis, that is a very great culture. And by culture, I mean, you can take the the listeners, you can take stuff from these cultures and make them yours. 
Fuck cultural appropriation. Take the good shit from these people. These are amazing communities that California is blessed to have with hardworking people. It's very interesting. My my boys play a variety of sports. They play um, skateboarding, which is like the smoking weed crowd. They do jujitsu, which is more of the um, uh, probably like South American crowd, you know, Latin crowd. And then they play tennis. And that's where their Indian and Pakistani friends are. And I'm telling you, man, th- like – they're, they're, if, if you have kids, you want your kids hanging around with this culture and th- this culture, they just happen to be have a certain look to them. But anyone can steal that culture and borrow and borrow. Take, take, fuck, borrow, take, take things from them and appropriate them and own them. I'm bringing them to the Armenian culture. So um, they're, they're, those people coming to the United States are a huge added value. I think Armenians are a huge added value, too. I think a lot of people are. But I, I just I just I just hate to see it um, conflated uh, race and culture. I'm take. Take from other cultures. Do it. Don't let, don't be afraid. Take the good stuff. Your parents were doctors and then you became a doctor. But I'm guessing you didn't go into medicine to do, to become, it, it would it be fair to say that you're starting to become an activist? Yeah. So, um, I, so both my parents were general practitioners and I'm sure that had a big influence on me in terms of going to medicine. Although my parents were very open-minded. Um, they just wanted me to be the best person I could be. Um, you know, they, they supported me, gave me uh, opportunities for a great education. I went to very good schools in the UK. Um, and at one stage, actually, I was a very, very sporty person. So I, I captained sports teams at school and university. I was, um, uh, I, I opened the batting. There's a game called cricket, which some of you may be familiar with uh, in, in England, which is a very popular sport around the world. And it's like a religion in India, in fact. So at one stage, I had to decide between you know, am I going to pursue a career as a professional sportsman or uh, go down the line of being a doctor and specifically a cardiologist? And I chose the latter ultimately because I didn't, I didn't believe I was, you know, going to be like, you know, I, I think I would probably be able to achieve more things in medicine than I would have been in cricket, would have done in cricket. Um, and cardiology was something that fascinated me even since I was a child, partly also related to the fact that I had uh, um, my, my grandfather who I was very close to, he died early in his 60s of something very rare. So it wasn't traditional heart disease. He had something called amyloidosis, which is uh, a condition that basically a protein deposits itself on the heart muscle and people very quickly from going to, from being very fit and healthy can deteriorate and die. And, and, and that's what happened to him. But then my older brother, um, he actually got a viral illness. He was 13, I was 11. Um, just, a, a va- just a regular viral illness. And then he had um, a condition called myocarditis, and um, unfortunately, you know, within a week of getting sick from just a tummy bug, um, he had a cardiac arrest and died. So for me, there was that initial, you know, that's obviously quite a, a big event for a family, right? For parents to lose their child, for, for me at 11 to use, lose my older brother, um, that had a very profound impact on us. And um, that kind of stimulated me a little bit more down the cardiology side of things. And then, of course, when you go to medical school, then, you know, your interest develops further. Um, so I chose cardiology. And um, with no regrets whatsoever. And in terms of the activism, um, Stefan, yeah, I think uh, I've probably been an activist, if you like, or a campaigner um, for the last 10 years. Um, Originally, I was inspired by um, really just doing what I could to combat the obesity epidemic. And and I've always been a foodie. You know, talk about culture. Um, You know, we have a huge food culture in, in Indian subcontinent. My dad taught me to cook when I was 16. You know, I had a reputation in medical school as, as the guy that cooked the best chicken curry. 
So I was always very much a foodie, you know, very much a lot of my, like a lot of people, right? Our, our lives revolve around eating good food, enjoyable food. And, um, and for me, uh, when I started campaigning, you know, I was becoming increasingly aware, having qualified in 2001, over several years, that our National Health Service was under more and more stress, more pressure, um, clearly related to obesity um, and conditions such as heart disease, type 2 diabetes, which were diet-related. And, and things weren't getting better. And uh, I, it wasn't just about what was happening on population level. I could feel it happening. You know, I could see it, observe it. It was becoming more stressful for doctors and nurses to work as well because uh, we didn't have more resources and, um, you know, people were coming with multiple conditions, more complex, to, more difficult to manage. So all of that, you know, becomes more stressful for the, for the whole system as well. And I wanted to do something to contribute to helping reduce that burden of chronic disease. But one thing that occurred to me quite early on is I observed the fact that one, you know, um, obesity was affecting National Health Service staff as well. So 50% of NHS employees are either overweight or obese, and that includes doctors and nurses. Um, and also our hostile food was particularly bad. You know, it's now the most recent data suggests that about 75% of, of food purchased in hospitals, Sevan, um, is unhealthy. It's ultra processed. It's sugary rubbish, basically. Um, so for me, initially, I started my campaign because, uh, you know, I had like an epiphany moment when a patient came in in the middle of the night. I was then by that stage, a, a, a junior cardiologist um, doing keyhole heart surgery. And we treat heart attack patients in the middle of the night. So I remember treating this one patient in his 50s. We saved his life um, with emergency stenting. And then the next morning on the ward round, when I'm talking to him about taking his pills and stopping smoking and eating healthily, oh, he gets man. served a burger and fries by the hospital. And he looks at me and he says, Doc, how do you expect me to change my lifestyle when you're serving me the same crap? Mm. that brought me here in the first place so for mm. me that was kind of like yeah you know what he's saying you know makes total sense and um and then i actually wrote to um a celebrity chef in the uk i think he's reasonably well known here called jamie oliver so i just emailed him one afternoon actually i was just sitting in, the, in my break um just in the doctor's office and i just emailed him and didn't expect a reply saying listen i i've seen what you've been doing and campaigning on improving school food for children to combat child obesity how about doing something in hospitals? And then I got a reply like six weeks later from his PA, uh, which I didn't expect saying, you know, thank you for contacting us, Dr. Mahotra. Jamie would be thrilled to meet you. Would you like to come and have a, a dinner with him at his office and, and chat further with other doctors? And I was like, of course, you know, <laughs> I was like, wow. And then things just escalated from there. I then wrote an article in, um, you know, after our meeting with Jamie, just putting everything together about how ultimately the, the root of the problem, Sevan, uh, whatever people want to discuss about, you know, personal responsibility, the root of the issue seems to be um, the food environment exacerbated by um, wrong dietary advice. But really, we need to sort the food environment out. Um, and uh, I wrote this piece, which then I didn't again expect um, became um, a front page commentary in the Observer newspaper, which is very impactful in the UK. Um, just to give you some, uh, your listeners, some context about the Observer newspaper. Um, Winnie Mandela said the single most important factor that led to the release of her husband, Nelson Mandela, from prison was a campaign launched by the Observer newspaper in the UK. Oh, okay. So that's the kind of impact it had, it has. And, uh, and this piece became a front page commentary. And they put a title something like, um, I mend hearts, then I see our hospitals serve junk food to my patients. So quite a you know, provocative title. Yeah. Um, and then for me, things just escalated from there. Uh, and, then I, and then as I you know, dug deeper, 
into trying to understand the root causes of many of these problems with um, with poor diet and um, uh, and ill health of patients and members of the public. You know, uh, there are two conclusions, two sort of areas that I focused on. One was too much medicine, over-medicated population, and all of the issues and manipulations of the drug industry that contribute to that, to what I describe as an epidemic of misinformed doctors and misinformed patients. But also, that also applied to the food industry and all the misinformation that they'd put out and all of, um, uh, you know, uh, targeting of children with junk food advertising. There's so many factors, you know, involved in this. So then I decided that I was going to campaign um, to try and reduce that burden. And around the same time, quite shortly after that, I became very familiar with the, the sugar issue, which by that stage was very quiet. Robert Lustig in the US, as you know, Professor Robert Lustig, pediatrician, had kind of reignited the discussion on sugar um, with, a, with um, a lecture he gave at University of California, San Francisco, which got millions of views on YouTube. And, you know, I then connected with him when I watched that. I started doing my own research. I then started publishing the BMJ. So, so I had a, a period of the year of 2013 for me was particularly impactful and is still having an impact because I wrote several commentaries in the BMJ, which got press released. Uh, and when you press release something, when a journal like the BMJ press release something, it, it's likely to hit the news. Um, and in that, uh, in those several months, I did commentaries on sugar. I talked about saturated fat. I talked about overprescription of statins. And they all made, you know, if not UK, international headlines in many, in many of these stories. Um, and then that you then take the the responsibility of uh, of seeing the impact of that, and then taking it further and, and creating a movement. And ultimately, for me, one of my um, I suppose personal achievements, if you like, seven. There's a lot more work to do, but it's a nice landmark. Is that I was considered the lead campaigner that brought the soda tax in, the sugary drinks tax in the UK, um, because of that activism, because of that work. Asim, um, there's so many things we agree on, so I apologize for just going straight to this one that I'm going to question you on. Um, you you talk about misinformation around diet, um, but then also it seems like you believe that the government can enforce that, can help that. And I'm in the position of um, – but by the way, at the very end of the book, there's um, – there's a list of 10 key uh, points for policymakers or, or for people who want to start activism. And nine of them I agree with wholeheartedly. And he speaks about them very clearly. And one of them is to uh, to hold um, hospitals accountable for the food they serve and some other things that he touched on there. But the part where I feel like – not I feel like. I see and I interpret the problem we're in because of government guidelines. And you're suggesting that maybe they can get fixed by government guidelines. By government intervention. Yes, I so, uh, no, I understand that. I understand that. So I think we have to just take a step back and okay. just understand that if we if we accept, you know, behavioral science, public health, if we accept that the environment has a huge role to play in our health and our behaviors, you know, that that's I think sometimes our own ego, certainly people I speak to, and I you know, I have I have a huge um, network of people with very different political views, left wing, right wing, sure, you know, centrist, whatever. So I, I understand where people are coming from. Uh, and, and what I think I have grown to learn, and we're all guilty of this, often, you know, our own egos um, uh, kind of usurp sometimes our rationale. So we emote um, before we reflect, right. um, you know, we react before we rationalize. And um, if you look at the issue around, uh, if we just pick food, for example, right? So if we, if we accept that, obviously, since the 1970s, 80s, there's been a huge shift, obviously, um, in the prevalence of obesity, it was pretty much non-existent in the Western world before then, before the, before 1980. Uh, so the question is, what's happened? 
And of course, you can absolutely, Seven, correctly argue the case that government guidelines on diet have been wrong and have, have fueled this crisis. But at the same time, what's happened is the food industry have taken advantage of those incorrect guidelines. So I, I absolutely on you, you know, with you on that. And then that's then, you know, shaped the food environment and then led to, you know, the oversupply of cheap, sugary, ultra-processed foods, low-quality carbohydrates, which we we know, you and I know, obviously, is is a big contributor to chronic disease and weight gain and interferes with appetite control mechanisms and all that kind of thing. But when you look at government intervention, I think we all have to, you know, there's there's a there's a line I remember, and I don't know, sorry if this is inappropriate, but just because Nothing's it's a very moving and powerful experience for me. So I've visited Auschwitz twice, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, uh, which is one of the, you know. Why the, twice? Infamous. Twice, <laughs> but, well, I was very moved the first time I went there. Yeah. And I went there with, um, with a friend of mine when I was backpacking as a medical student um, through Europe. And then I went again because we'd visited Poland with two other friends, you know, several years later, and they wanted to go. And I said, okay, let's, let's go again. It's a very moving, powerful experience. One of the most, you know, um, uh, um, emotional experiences one could ever have. uh, Are people like crying there when you're there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult not to. I mean, you think you've gone back in time. I mean, it's, they preserve the place that you literally think you've gone back to the 1930s, 40s. You know, it's, it's just extraordinary, but it's just, you know, they've preserved everything, right? And you can feel, you can feel that what, what the, the emotion and the death and everything that happened there. But as I walked into one of the um, dormitories where, you know, um, people were kept uh, captive, um, there's, a, there's a, a quote on the wall, and I can't remember who, the, who actually said this, but it's that he that does not remember history is bound to live through it again. Mm. Now, when you look at public health successes, when you look at like increase in life expectancy over the years, like so I, one of the things I write about in the book, Seven, if you remember, so if you look at the average life expectancy in 1850 in the US was 40 years old, and we've, we've added about 40 years to our life expectancy on average since then in the US, okay, and, and to many Since Western 1860? Cultures, 1850, so the last okay. sort of almost, you know, over 150 years. So the, the key thing is, so what contributed to that increase in life expectancy? And most of it were public health interventions, which were underpinned by regulation, you know, so um, better, safer working environments, uh, uh, safer drinking water, seatbelts in cars. Can't take more a shit recently, in the street. Yeah, more, more recently, street tobacco in, right? control, Seven, right? Oh, yeah. Tobacco control only happened because of government intervention, right, to combat the excesses of the tobacco industry. And there were three A's we talk about in public health, which I would apply to ultra-processed food and, and explain that to you um, further, but... You know, tobacco control, let's not forget, like we take it for granted now. So and I remember when I was a kid, um, even coming to California, right? So um, you actually in the US were ahead of the UK because you, inter- you, you put laws in to stop smoking in public places. I remember in Europe, you know, it wasn't until um, the sort of, uh, I, I think, I can't remember the exact year. I think it was late. It wasn't that long ago, early 2000s, where we interviewed, in, you know, we, we had um, smoke-free buildings legislation. It was normal. Even certain places in Europe, you go, you sit in a restaurant, people are smoking, right? And, and once it was realized that passive smoking actually itself was harmful uh, and, that um, you know, to, uh, to combat the, the – so the, come back to the three A's. So acceptability, affordability, and um, the um, availability of cigarettes, right? That was what the government did to curb through public health advice. 
listening to scientists, to reduce the smoking burden in the population. And in fact, those three things before, so education had very, is important. Let's not deny it. Education is very important because it also, also helps public support laws or interventions that are going to help everybody or give, you know, people, you know, reduce the chances of, of, of people smoking. And doesn't mean we ban smoking, by the way. People can still smoke. If seven, I'm sure in the US, if I've, I've walked around places, if you want to buy a pack of cigarettes, you can do. So we're not banning it. But we're just making it easier for people to make healthier choices when it comes to, for example, with food. You apply the same um, principles to ultra-processed food. You will see on a population level, seven, a huge reduction, I'm sure, in type 2 diabetes and obesity within a few years. If we had the you know, 60% of the US diet is ultra-processed food. You know, these are, these are how I describe it to patients. If it comes in a packet and it has five or more ingredients, usually containing additives, preservatives, but those five ingredients are usually a combination seven, as you know, of sugar, starch, you know, starch, unhealthy oils, that kind of thing. So bad. Avoid it, right? Just avoid it. But this is 60% of, of the calorie consumption in the U.S. diet is from these foods. I so, think in your so, book you said 44, and when you maybe I heard it wrong, and when I heard that, I'm like, there's no way it's got to be higher. It's got to no, be higher. No, yeah, so the so U.S. is 60%. In the okay. U.K., it's about 50%. Okay, um, and because I had read in, in, in Mexico, 55% of calories consumed are from soda pop on average. I, I read that the other day in, in the headline. Yeah, it it's is unbelievable. unbelievable. And seven, even if we say that we're against government intervention generally as a principle, yeah. and I get that, you know, um, because if we agree, okay, we're all actors, we have personal responsibility, all that kind of stuff, which which I think I could argue the science about how that makes it, it's, it's not impossible, but it's harder, right? When you're in food, it's like, it, we have to think it's different for kids, right? You've got kids, right? So tackling issues around advertising, definitely the power for parents, all of those yep. things, right? <clears throat> Association of, of companies like McDonald's with cartoon characters, all of these things have a huge role. So, so we did that with tobacco. I mean, even, you know, dissociating it from sport. I used to go to cricket matches or soccer games or watch Formula One, you know, and they were sponsored by big tobacco at the time. You don't see it now. If you saw it now, you'd think, seven, you wouldn't think that was acceptable. You, you, you'd right. think that's just wrong, right? right. So I think if we, if we apply those principles, in my view, to ultra-processed food, then that, from a policy level, will have a huge impact. Like in the same way, so, so did, for, we know that, you know, when you look back and you can look at the research on this, the biggest decline in consumption of tobacco happened after taxing cigarettes, so raising the price. Uh, and I remember I've seen so many patients of mine, heart attack patients I saw that would come back to clinics and I'd say, how they're getting on? Have you stopped smoking? And they said, dog, I can't afford it anymore. I said, really? So the price, but he said, I don't regret it. I'm happy that I'm not able to afford it because that's helped me yeah. you know, to, to, to quit smoking. So I think we just have to just take a little bit of a uh, a broader understanding that this isn't about um, usurping individual freedoms. It's about actually what makes sense from a, from a behavioral science point of view, et cetera. Um, and again, I'm not saying banning, you know, we, we, we were not going to ban sugary drink. I mean, I personally think that would be a great thing to be honest, if they were banned, but um, we know when we ban things, it often has the opposite effect. You had prohibition yep. in the States, see what happened there, yep. right? All went underground. Right. So, yep. so I wouldn't say banning. I'm not for that. Um, uh, certain things, you know, banning junk food advertising, I would support, right? But in terms of people being able to get these products if they want to, really want to, fine, that's right. fine. But right. but actually, let's do something that will make the people's healthy choices the easy choice. 
I, I hear you. Uh, the, the the thing that I have a real the, the way I agree with you is is like yeah you have and you do talk about it in your book. There's this list of uh, public intervention that has been really successful, and because it's failed with food, now I'm saying fuck you and I want to take all my so- toys and leave the sandbox. And maybe that's not right. Maybe what you're what you're saying is is like hey let's take another shot at it. Um, that uh, that being said. Uh, to support you, I I don't think it should be legal to feed your to put to put uh, Mountain Dew in your baby's bottle, and that is something you know. There's people who do that that put soda pop in their baby's bottle, and the fact that you can't smoke until you're I don't know in the United States. Let's say it's 18 years old. I'm not sure what it is 18 or 21. How can you give your child yeah. uh, so- soda pop? I mean, that's it, crazy, it's, it's, right? It is it is crazy, but it's so. I was just at a Thanksgiving dinner and I watched a couple give. Um, coke to a four-year-old and then for the next hour and a half i watched the four-year-old spin out of control they gave a four-year-old sugar liquid sugar and caffeine but they don't even know any better exactly exactly absolutely it was Um, nuts formula milk itself it's a huge problem right so yeah you know and and people have mothers have been misled to believing it's almost as good as breast milk um and and that then reduces the um, duration of breastfeeding, which is a big detrimental, has a big detrimental impact on 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 child development uh, and even probably into adulthood and beyond. You know, because formula milk is full of sugar. A lot of formula milks are full of sugar. Um, I wrote one of the first pieces I wrote in the BMJ was called the um, the dietary advice on added sugars in need of emergency surgery. That was the, the title. People can look it up and have a read. But my own kind of investigation in that in that piece, I discovered that one uh, formula milk, which was being marketed in Europe had the equivalent of nine, which was marketed for 12-month-old babies, by the way, had the equivalent of nine teaspoons of added sugar in it. Oh, my goodness. Know? And, uh, yeah. Just, hey, just so that, that's, that's life-changing, right? Though, if, if you do that to your baby, like I've heard stories, if you give a, a young boy too much sugar, his penis and his testicles won't develop properly, that you'll make them hormonally, they, they won't drop properly. If you, it, It's like life-changing, right? Life-altering, like you will change the whole trajectory of, the, of, a, of oh. a human being if you overfeed them with sugar absolutely yeah it's nuts will you tell us why sugar is so bad well, I, I know I think, that yeah. and, and, and make sure sorry that the, the, um, one of the things is really i like to talk about too especially in these times is in relationship to the immune system i mean you can go anywhere but if, as long as you hit the immune system i'd really appreciate it i mean i've yeah. talked ad nauseum to my audience about it yeah, no, sure. Um, I think, well, first of all, I mean, there's a number of reasons sugar in excess, you know, let's, let's put this in context rather than be complete zealots about it. Is but you are a zealot about it, though, correct? Well, You're th- just saying that to accommodate the audience, right? <laughs> well, I am in the sense that I think we just have to just stick some facts. So first of all, there's no requirement. You, know, you don't need any added. There's no nutritional value. So it's not required. You don't need it for the body. There's no reason to have it other than for pleasure, which obviously a lot of us have it. That's that's why we, we consume it. That's why it's so... Um, it's so prevalent and such a pro- such a big problem because it's pleasurable. It's it's like a drug, you know, the way it hits our taste buds and how we feel with sugar. And I, by the way, I'm speaking as a reformed sugar addict, which Me I'll too. come on to in a second. So first of all, you don't don't need it. So there's no requirement. It's at, at best, it's empty calories. Even smaller amounts, about two spoon, two teaspoons a day, are going to have an issue with um, tooth decay. Now. Uh, to the extent where certainly in the UK, the, the number one cause of uh, chronic pain and hospital admissions in young children, sort of age between, say, six and 11, um, is, uh, is tooth decay. And the single biggest driver is, is sugar. You know, it's one of the few things that we ingest that directly corrodes teeth enamel. So that's, that's when you look at you know, the, the initial harms. 
now when you you know without quoting lots and lots of different studies you know individually the world health organization now advises that a maximum limit for the average adult and i'm put i'm going to put this in context should be no more than six teaspoons of added sugar per day as a limit okay not a requirement but in the us and the uk the average adult is consuming and unknown to them consuming two to three times this this amount um, about a third of sugar consumption comes from sugary drinks um, uh, about six comes from um, foods such as you know ice creams and and, and chocolates and that kind of stuff um, but you know a huge proportion almost half will come from foods that people don't even think has added sugar in them like breads and ketchup that kind of stuff so a lot of it by the way a soda has 10 teaspoons so if you have one soda you're four well, teaspoons you over your limit well, right? exactly so okay. that's the okay. point right so okay, yep. we've got a maximum limit and just one soda and or one candy bar is going to take you over the limit and for kids as well right they're, they're, and the reason for that is that all of the science and the data points towards the fact that when you go beyond this limit and it's going to vary from individual to individual that's when you start to increase the risk of insulin resistance Right. So this is the body basically becoming resistant to the hormone insulin. Um, and uh, over time, an insulin resistance itself, which is driven by sugar and uh, probably refined carbohydrates, too, uh, is uh, the really at the root of most of these chronic diseases that we're, we're trying to deal with in the Western world. So it's heart disease, type 2 diabetes, links to obesity, probably Alzheimer's, uh, you know, uh, as well as even possibly, you know, the other links to even um, musculoskeletal conditions, arthritis, osteoporosis, that kind of thing, cancer, right? So all of these things are linked to insulin resistance. This is at the root. And sugar is one of one of the drivers of that when consumed in excess. So uh, for me as a cardiologist, the single biggest risk factor, if you like, for heart disease and heart attacks is insulin resistance. More than 80% of people who suffer heart attacks will have insulin resistance. Now, how can we measure that? Um, how can we, in a simple way, keep an eye on this? Is, uh, is, is talk about metabolic health. So in simple terms, um, you know, uh, metabolic health, uh, you know, when it becomes dysfunctional is really excess body fat really uh, becomes a risk factor for conditions that lead to insulin resistance and poor metabolic health. So poor metabolic health is a major issue. So, so sorry. So the definition of metabolic health is uh, whether you have too much, you're carrying too much fat on the body. Yeah, it's a, in simple terms, okay. yes. Okay. Um, uh, Sevan, absolutely. It's a, okay. it's about how your body's able to really deal with the energy, cons you know, energy consume and what you expend. But as you know, most of what drives obesity is really what you're putting in the top end in your mouth. Um, yep. You know, fitness, and we're, we're big advocates for all the health benefits of exercise, but um, but weight loss is not a big benefit of exercise, right? So there's lots of other benefits. And so when it comes to excess body fat, most of it is driven by what we eat. right? Um, and that leads to um, poor metabolic health, which is now defined um, in, in so many, well, before I tell you how we define it, what's really concerning is that um, only one in 12 Americans, uh, sorry, one in eight Americans, okay, actually have optimal metabolic health. And which country what, is one in 12? So, which country is one in 12? Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I don't know. <laughs> I'm wondering uh, where you pulled that data from, where that cross wires. Well, I no, like, I, 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 it was 12%. I, oh, okay, 12%. yes, okay, okay. So 12%, <laughs> so one in eight. That's why I was, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I thought you were going to say the UAE or something like that. No, no, so less than 12% okay. or, right. you know, um, a one in eight people in the, in the U.S. have optimal right. metabolic health. All right. Right. Which is pretty shocking. And that doesn't yes. just apply to older people. That's so only one in four adults between 20 and 47 have optimal metabolic health in, in the US. So how do we define it? Well, there are five um, markers, if you like. So prediabetes uh, or type two diabetes. So you want to have your HbA1c less than 5.7 percent. 
you want your blood pressure to be less than 120 over 80. Okay, so above 120 over 80, you get to pre-hypertension, then you get to hypertension. By the uh, way, you, all of this, don't panic, guys. All of this is in his book, which is a very easy, very quick read, and it's called The 21-Day Immunity Plan. And even if you're perfectly healthy, you've got to read this because this will help arm you to help your loved ones. Okay, sorry. Go on. Absolutely. Thanks, Evan, for that. And, yeah, I think and, it's and really, he'll it's explain what US, blood pressure is and everything. Right? I'm sorry. Released, one more time. Yeah, and I yes. think it's released in the U.S. in February. Yeah, 2020. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. The 21-day immunity plan is here. We have it in the U.S. The one that's not being released until February is a statin-free life, but that one you can still get. I bought the audiobook last night, and I'll try to um, have a scene back on in February for the release of that, the, um, the paperback version in the United States. But if you get the 21-day immunity plan, you will see um, all of this stuff that Asim is talking about, and he'll not only tell you what good – good or bad blood pressure is he will explain to you what blood pressure is so this is just uh the cliff notes version here on the podcast sorry go ahead Asim. no fantastic so 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 you don't want to be uh, pre-diabetic or type 2 you want to have optimal blood pressure then waist circumference very easy everyone could get tape measure you know measure it at the at the um at the belly button um and uh for a man it should be less than 102 centimeters and for a woman less than 90 of course you know, people are of different heights. So there's another nice rule of thumb is you want your waist circumference to be less than half of your height. So let's say you're 180 mm. centimeters, right? You want to be less than 90 centimeters of, uh, of your waist circumference. That's another nice rule of thumb. Yeah, that is uh, nice. Absolutely. And then triglycerides and HDL. So um, you want your blood triglycerides to be, um, in UK, we say one millimole per liter, but I think in the US that would I think if I'm not wrong, 150 milligrams per deciliter. And your HDL should be higher than that. So you want your good cholesterol to be higher than, than one millimole. Um, and another, again, ideally your triglycerides should be less than the HDL. Now, if you have all of those uh, op optimal levels, you've got optimal metabolic health and you are probably at the lowest risk of uh, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, all that kind of, all those big chronic diseases. Uh, and the, and what's interesting and what I write about, that's why it's called 21 day immunity yeah. plan. It's not, it may sound like a gimmick, but it isn't. And this is something that there is clinical research data on. There is stuff. This is what I experienced with my patients is that from dietary changes alone, you can reverse metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome, by the way, is having three of those markers in the abnormal range. And that's associated with the worst health outcomes. And even if people who are told they've got a normal body mass index, which is pretty much useless. I mean, body mass index, I think we should just, you know, um, we should just throw in the trash can. Uh, Do you really use. though? I was going to ask you about that. In your book, you basically say that it's, it, it, I thought you said it's correct. Um, it's only incorrect one in 200 people. No. So if you are obese, so, so one in 200 people who are obese have a BMI of over 30 will have optimal metabolic health. But uh. actually, yes. But about a third of people you know, who have a normal body mass index will have suboptimal metabolic health, if you like, right? So, so, the, so, so, so people have the a, illusion uh, of protection. They just think they're being told their BMI is fine. You know, it's between 18 and 25, when in fact, they're probably, there's a good chance they may have suboptimal metabolic health. It gives them the illusion of protection. You know, I said, there's no such thing uh, as a healthy weight, seven, there's only a healthy person. And like, so like Jason Kalipa, BMI would never work on him. The guy, he, I think he's, do you know who that is? The crossfitter? He's a sports He's a CrossFitter. He's 5'9", right. 215 pounds, but there's no fat on the guy. Right. He's he's just a Persian horse. He's just, he's yeah. nuts. I mean, okay. And I'm sure his optimal, you know, his metabolic health markers are probably all optimized, but if he, if he hasn't checked them, he should. Okay. All right. <laughs> so like uh, a true cardiologist. But, but yeah, so that's really, uh, you know, the crux of it all. 
And uh, as I said, so the good news is you can reverse metabolic syndrome within 21 to 28 days, purely just from dietary changes. I mean, people can do the other stuff, you know, their moderate activity. I'm not saying don't do it. But, you know, the, the, just from changing diet, you can, you can reverse those metabolic health markers. And the, and the same dietary changes are also the ones that apply to setting type 2 diabetes into remission, reducing people's need for medication. Uh, and, and again, it's not rocket science, Seven. It is, you know, essentially eliminating uh, ultra-processed food and um, minimizing low-quality carbohydrates. And that really is, is, is a crux of, of reversing these, uh, this metabolic syndrome or improving metabolic health quite rapidly. Um, and, uh, and the reason we're not combating it again is because the environment is, we're fighting this in food environment where, um, you know, most of these foods that we're consuming are, are going to have the opposite effect, a detrimental effect on the metabolic health. I'm going to stumble around in the dark here and say some crazy shit and feel free to just be like, Hey, I don't know, or, um, you're too wrong. So <laughs> early, early, early on, I was trying to figure out why, why sugar is so bad for for your immune system. And in a nutshell, these, this is what I came up with from watching YouTube videos. Basically your bloodstream is like a freeway. And when you eat too much sugar, you get too much insulin in there and you get too much leptin in there. And basically that clogs the freeway and causes a jam in the freeway. And the T cells and the NK cells can't do their job adequately because adequately because there's a traffic jam in there. But there's also another phenomenon, which, which I found fascinating. And I don't know if this is true, but I saw it on YouTube. Your leptin receptors are the ones that transmit information to your NK cells and your T cells. They have a double job, which is fascinating. They get that information, I guess, from the hypothalamus where the library of viruses and bacteria or whatever is stored from when you're born to, to when you die. And that they, your hypothalamus somehow tells your leptin receptors, hey, we have an enemy in, 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 the, in the bloodstream. And then they notify your NK cells and your T cells, go get that guy, whether it's a cancer, whether it's a, a, a SARS-CoV-2. And basically, once you become leptin resistance, leptin resistant, you're screwed. Uh, do you have you heard? I never hear Seven, anyone. Su summarize really nicely. Really nicely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about that. Sorry. We, we, okay. you know, we're talking about and I never videos. hear anyone talk about this. And I'm and people are like, yeah. shut the fuck up. You're not so a scientist. Stuff, I'm like, dude, I watched a hundred YouTube videos on yeah, it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think there's a number of things. I've published um, um, you know, research papers on this as well uh, okay. in, the last, in the last couple of years. Around I was sweating like you were going to tell me to shut up and stay in my No, name. no, no, absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so leptin itself is pro-inflammatory. So I think people need to understand, if you start from the basics, excess body fat also means chronic inflammation. It means that your body feels there is an internal threat and therefore, your immune system is kind of activated and dysregulated, if you like. So if you've got chronic inflammation in the body, which excess body fat is one of the substrates for, if you like. What, what is inflammation? Uh, inflammation basically is your um, anything where uh, your immune system is activated to an uh, external pathogen, okay? Okay. something that is considered toxic to the body and for, for the purposes of trying to get rid of that toxin. So all of your immune system cells, white cells, T, all the things you talk about, T cells, B cells, they can get activated and they can create this uh, what we call chronic inflammatory state where they're constantly on alert, if you like, and okay. constantly trying to fight external stresses. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to, to, to excess body fat, but even stress itself also activates chronic inflammation. Chronic psychological stress does that. So anything that really increases chronic inflammation in the body is also going to, what, what we believe happens is going to mean that your immune system is not um, optimized to deal with things like viruses and bacteria. 
Okay. So that's one mechanism how excess body fat is a risk factor. So we look at, you know, this has been well documented now. We know obesity and excess body fat, metabolic syndrome, et cetera, um, you know, increases the risk of, of complications from COVID-19. Um, but this is actually all historical. I mean, it's something that doctors haven't really fully, um, how should I put it? It's not something that we have thought about deeply as doctors. But if you look at and you think about even pre-COVID, if you look at people with excess body fat, they tend to do worse from flu. If you look at um, type 2 diabetics, have much more risk of infection and more likely to be hospitalized just by being type two di- having type 2 diabetes. And that isn't necessarily because of excess body fat. So bl- high blood glucose, and as you said already correctly, high insulin, actually themselves are, um, uh, you know, viruses and bacteria will thrive off high blood glucose. Okay, so just think of it in very simple terms. If you're going to eat something, I mean, it's interesting. On that, there was one study that showed even in non-diabetics, those admitted to hospital with um, with high blood glucose who were non-diabetic, non, you know, had worse outcomes from COVID-19 than people who had normal blood glucose, right? So in theory, what are we saying? Well, we're saying actually, in theory, now this is not, you know, I, I'm just, just getting people to think about this. I don't think there's any hard, very hard, strong data to prove this, you know, conclusively. But essentially, if you are um, catching any kind of virus or infection, let's say COVID, then the worst thing you can do is eat ultra-processed and, and high glycemic index carbohydrates based upon data that shows that the higher the blood glucose, the less likely you are to do well, okay, Did mechanistically. You guys, people, you have to hear that. Right? If and you're seven, sick, I, do I not drink you something? a m- I Mountain manage Dew. many patients with COVID in the community, Yeah. okay, um, and advise them. And one of the things I said to them, and of course, listen, we know COVID or overall, you know, depending on your, your risk factor profile, is in absolute terms, the risk of being hospitalized and dying is still very low. But still, you know, all of these people, I said, listen, I, I want you to do these things. And one of the things I said is for the next few days, just eat nutritious foods, cut out all the ultra processed food, no sugar, um, minimize any starchy carbohydrates. You know, they all did very well. But with keeping that in mind, knowing what I know around insulin and glucose, et cetera, and, and those poor outcomes. Yeah. It's, it, it, uh, man, it's nuts. Um, what do you think about, um, so, so what about the accuracy of what, do you know anything about the leptin receptor? Does the leptin receptor have, um, that duty? I can't find a lot of information on it. Have you ever heard that before that the leptin receptor somehow has that relationship with NK cells and T cells? I'm sure. Listen, it makes sense. Um, I can't confirm that with you seven right now, okay. but it makes sense. We, we do know that leptin itself, you know, is pro-inflammatory and, and you want to be really reducing, um, the chronic inflammation. So, so it makes sense. Um, I think around other lifestyle things that we can't ignore as well, you know, especially in terms of the relation to immunity. I mean, it, the immunity plan was really predicated on the whole COVID-19 pandemic and, and who were the people adversely affected and what, what could we do about it as individuals? And of course, on the policy level as well. So, you know, um, I was asked to advise the, the British government, the Secretary for Health contacted me, um, asking uh, me to give him advice on what they should be doing because I was the first person doctor to publicly suggest that our prime minister got admitted to hospital with COVID-19 because of his weight. Uh, And that then became a big story. Um, And then things evolved from there. Um, But one of the other things that I think is important to mention is vitamin D deficiency. So Uh, we know there are studies showing that uh, people that died and had severe outcomes from COVID-19, 80% of them had uh, vitamin D deficiency. We know vitamin D, and this is something I had to research. I wasn't aware of it until I'd researched it. It's so important as a hormone in the immune system. It has a role uh, in, in optimizing the immune system through various mechanisms. So vitamin D 
is a big problem in, in places where uh, people don't expose them enough, uh, themselves enough to the sun. So right. 90% of our vitamin D7 actually is through sunlight, you know, being outside, right? Um, even 10 to 15 minutes a day of bare arm and leg exposure uh, to the sunlight is, is good enough to maintain your vitamin D levels. But many people in the Western world aren't doing that, especially people sitting inside a lot of the time um, or even working out inside, et cetera, and then going home and, and sitting at a desk or whatever else. So that we just something we need to think about a little bit more. Um, and if not, then get supplements, of course. Uh, and generally, they are without harm. So people certainly through the winter, I recommend uh, most people in the UK to take vitamin D supplementation. And, um, you, and you say in your book that um, it's too late once you get sick. To take the vitamin yeah, D. Yeah, the there was a trial, an RCT, a randomized control trial that was done, looked at um, hospitalized patients and topping up them with vitamin D. And it didn't improve their outcomes, but it's probably because it's too late by then, you know? So uh, take I, don't it think, now. I don't think vitamin D acutely probably does anything. But over time, certainly within a few weeks, probably, well, you know, if you optimize your levels within a few weeks, which you can do, um, then at that stage, you're in a much better position. I mean, these are associations, so we can't be, we haven't got definitive proof, but we, it's very likely that vitamin D has an important role in the immune system uh, and certainly in helping reduce poor outcomes. But in, in, even independent of, of immune system, as a cardiologist, I will say that vitamin D, severe vitamin D deficiency is associated with a six-fold increased risk of developing heart disease. So oh, even from the heart wow. disease perspective, it's very important. Um, so so that, that's one other area. Now let's talk about exercise, Seven. You're, you know, you're the exercise expert, aren't you? Um, uh, certainly, I'm sure you know a lot more about exercise than I do. But when I look at the, you know, I look at two areas. Of course, I've always looked at heart disease. But if we look at the immune system, what's really interesting, and I, I'm sure people have their own anecdotes for, around this. So moderation is key, getting enough, right? Um, but overdoing it um, actually has a detrimental effect on the immune system in the sense that if you look at elite athletes, they tend to get four times as many respiratory infections per year um, compared to people who do moderate activity, right? So uh, this is, if you do more than an hour of vigorous activity a day, you're likely, no, it doesn't mean that you're going to be, it's going to be a complete disaster, but relatively speaking, your immune system is not going to be as, as good as someone who does moderate activity, 30 minutes a day, for example. And there's good, there's good, quite a lot of data on that. But uh, interestingly, um, if you compare an elite athlete to someone completely sedentary, the elite athletes gets twice as many respiratory infections per year compared to the person who's completely sedentary. So the, the, the optimum is making sure you're doing something regularly and even 10 to 20 minutes of, of brisk walking, when we talk about T-cells, enhance T-cell function. So I think the regular, keeping the regular activity and not overdoing it when it comes to the immune system is crucial. And of course, We've all been there. I'm, I, I would say I have OCD about exercise seven. I've yep, been, you know, literally every, I'm the first guy in my gym back in the UK. It opens at six. I know here that you have 24 hour gyms, but my local gym in Hampstead opens at 6.45 a.m. I'm usually one of the first people to walk in there to the gym. So I'm very disciplined about working out and stuff like that. But I've also found during periods of my life when I overdid it, you know, when I was working in junior doctor, for example, I remember one time I decided, and I was eating a lot of sugar at that time. I don't know. I was feeling guilty about it or whatever else. And I, you know, I was a bit stressed out. I decided to run at high pace on a, on a treadmill for over an hour. And I, a few days later, I got the worst battle flu I'd ever had. And it, it took a long time to get over it. And, and now when I reflect back, I've realized, especially if you're not getting really good quality sleep, you have to be just careful. You know, and you know, Seven, as well as a CrossFitter, that your, your risk of injury increases if you're not resting properly and recovering properly as well. All that being said, I don't want anyone using an excuse 
that it's 11 o'clock at night and you can't go in the garage and work out for 10 minutes. If you haven't worked out, get in there and sweat. Don't Absolutely. be a sissy. 10 Absolutely. minutes. That's all I'm asking. Um, uh, uh, Asim, many times on Instagram, I've put out a uh, – I've said some pretty – some stuff that I guess seems pretty radical. And one of the things I say is show me one healthy person that's died. And the metaphor that I've used or the analogy that I've used and I've used this with, with my dad. My dad says, you don't believe in COVID. You don't believe it's killing people. And I said, look, if there's a man on a high wire, a thousand feet off the ground, and I tell him a hundred mile an hour wind is coming, um, and an hour later the wind comes and he dies, what killed him? His stupidity, his being on the high wire or the wind? Like it, it is not a clear sign of what's going on. Yeah. For 50, in, in where I've been for 15 years around Greg Glassman, he has told us that the tsunami of chronic disease is coming. It's here. We're in it. Don't be dumb. Stop eating added sugar and refined carbohydrates. Now we're in it. No one who would have ever thought it would have manifested as some virus, right? And, and masqueraded as that, from my opinion, my words. And I know that's a bit cavalier. But the to, to to kind of jump on what you were saying, the only healthy people anyone has sent me a picture or a news article of who's died from SARS-CoV-2, which manifested as COVID, is ultra ultra marathon biker dudes. Yeah. The, well, they'll be like, go, well, this right? guy's healthy. I'm like, what are you talking about? The Tour de France guys are are notorious for hiding in their in their motorhomes because they're afraid that they'll get sick on if the wind blows the wrong way, correct? Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when I saw some of those healthy, I, I thought, mm, are these guys overdoing it in terms yeah. of their exercise? Is that what's made them vulnerable? And 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 the media, and of course, we don't other... know their diet. They could be on high sugar diets as well, right? Even though they're and they are excess body fat. Yeah, I'd be willing to go on a limb that they're living off of goo packs. You're six two, 154 pounds, and you're a world class biker. I mean, I. I, I I have to guess you're just living off of uh, goo packs. And, and then on the other hand, the media is posting tons and tons of photos of people. And it says healthy, healthy young boy dies of COVID. And they show a picture of him and, they're, and he's 16 years old and he's so obese that his ears are hidden by the fat on his skull. You can't see his eyes. And, um, he, he you know, he's clearly 400 pounds. And this is uh, – using words like this yeah it's 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 unfortunate uh seven changes the baseline context here these are very tragic of course for all those individuals and their families but i think again people need a bit of a lot of people we're standing too close to the elephant yes the narrative has been pushed on us for two years uh the fear the pandemic of fear um and actually we've lost a bit of perspective here um and that itself is is detrimental because fear itself drives disease right so if you're scared of something that isn't going to kill you that's not good for your mental health I had family uh, members who, who got um, uh, family members and friends who got SARS and who knew that there was no chance of it hurting them. They're in perfect health. They don't need added sugar. They don't need refined carbohydrates. And yet, and 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 they were so cavalier. But when they got it, the the media panic came in a little bit, and they had yeah. a few pa- they had a few panic attacks. Sure. And I'm like, hey man, chill, just go for a while. And and by the way, uh, once again, the 21 day immunity plan. There's an element in there. That talk, there's a section in there that talks about the importance of breathing. If you are alive on the planet and you don't go back to your breath at least once a day, you're missing out on a huge part of your existence. Your fallback anytime you're thinking something goes wrong, you have a free moment, should be on your breathing. And one of the hacks I can help you guys with that I did is a couple of years ago, I only work out, when I work out, I only do nose breathing. And what that does is that lowered my intensity, but oh, but but now it's back up since I've been doing it for so long. 
but it, it really forced me to pay attention to my breathing. And, and now, it, like if I'm on a plane and there's turbulence, I go to my breathing. When I fall asleep at night, I, I go to my breathing. When my kids um, set me off, I go to my breathing. It's just a default. Yeah. And, 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 and Asim talks about that and talks about stress. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Asim. No, no, seven, 100%. Really important, keeping stress levels low. Again, we know that. Um, I think people, you know, anecdotally, you talk to people, you think about some of the worst illnesses you've had in your life, whether it's bad flu, cold, whatever, you know, uh, often they're linked to some kind of psychological negative or stress effect, uh, event that's happened, stressful event that's happened in your life. So, um, you know, you know so these things, life is unpredictable. We can't uh, always avoid, you know, that we're all going to suffer at some point major tragedies in our life. So, um, but I think you can give yourself the best baseline by keeping your stress levels in check. And I'm a big, big supporter and fan of meditation. Absolutely. There is um, this question that comes up over and over, and I suspect you'll be much more compassionate than my response. Um, what about artificial sweeteners and Diet Coke? And my response is, fuck you, you're not ready. Like, get out of here. I'm guessing you have a – go ahead. Yeah, One of the problems with Sugar 7 is we have to unsweeten our sweet tooth. Uh-huh. And and to so I would you know I would tell people to go cold turkey on sugar as, as part of my advice to patients completely and also avoid anything that's sweet artificial sweetness um, because it's going to make it less likely that you're going to be able to sustain it and then break that addiction um, and of course you know there is emerging evidence that these some of these artificial sweeteners the diet sodas for example probably have an adverse effect on the gut microbiome they also may spike insulin slightly. So I generally say just drink water. That, that's my advice. But one thing, seven. Sorry, just I forgot because uh, you mentioned about the um, the pandemic affair around COVID. I think a lot of you know I'm going to be writing something a bit more about this soon, just to put things in context. But I think um, John Ainidis, professor of medicine at Stanford, last year on CNN uh, from his own research, had to kind of nicely summarize what the risk of COVID was to different individuals in terms of their age. And he said, you know, he said if you look at older people, people in hospitals, nursing homes, but certainly the elderly, it seems to be significantly, can be devastating, much worse than the flu. So let's compare it to the flu in, the, in those age groups. In middle age, he said it's probably quite equivalent, the risk of serious illness and death from, from COVID in people of middle age, you know, say 40 to 65, is, is likely similar to the flu. But if you're younger, certainly for kids uh, and very young adults, it's less lethal than the flu. And that's still supported. You know, there's no evidence to suggest it's anywhere close to being as lethal as the flu in people who are in children and young adults. So I just think it's important just for people to have that in context when they think about, you know, um, about COVID. Uh, and, and if anything, and that was, by the way, before we had Omicron, which appears quite consistently so far to be much milder than the original variant, which Don Anidis was talking about. It, it's it's amazing how many people I see with their kids' masks, or I hear over conversate overhear conversations every day with people say, "Well, I'm going to be especially careful." I actually have family members who aren't traveling for Christmas because they want to protect their kids. And the thing with me is, is it, it, and maybe this is, people can say what they want. But when my wife got COVID, we didn't change anything. We didn't. I mean, my wife doesn't eat added sugar, refined carbohydrates. She exercises every day, and I got it. The kids got it. We treated it just like chicken pox. Like I wanted to get it and and it be over with. Now she had a more severe case than all of us, but my feeling is is why not have the child get it now instead of having to deal with it when they're eighty. Um, I, I got a I got a, a question for you. It, it's a personal question. Um, you talk about how you got the vaccine. And how you got it to try to protect those you believed it was the right thing to do to protect those around you. 
Can you walk me through? And, but what's also interesting, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, is that your brother died of myocarditis. Or is that correct? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Far and, so you, and so you got a, a now you got a, a, a ton of data points. And I'm sure. What are your thoughts on this whole thing? Do you wish you still would have gotten it? Um, yeah. is, that, is that the correct way of thinking? Should I go out and get it to protect those around me? So, I mean, yeah, I won't. I think, but yeah, this me. is evolving space. I mean, yes. I'll give you a general overview on this. Um, I will be writing and doing something on this soon just to try and put everything together. So I don't want to, um, you know, until I've gathered all the data to make a more objective opinion on it. I don't want to, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to um, go into a lot of detail right now. But but yeah, so I, you know, traditional vaccines, first and foremost, I, I'm very much uh, somebody who's for vaccines uh, mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, your your polio, MMR, um, so many vaccines have, have estimated to probably say they probably save around six million lives a year. OK, so so that's uh, the best data we have on traditional vaccines. Um, with that in mind, um, and I helped out in a vaccine center very early on. I had I had both Pfizer jabs quite early on, um, earlier this year. Um, but for me, it was not big. And I, I knew about the risks of COVID by that. I'd rationalized things in terms of I wasn't concerned about myself. But as a doctor, and I'm, my left arm is covered in scars from various vaccines I've had. You know, we do it often. We do it to protect other, others, protect patients. So for me, it was a no-brainer from that perspective at that time. But that's also in keeping with um, a, uh, a background understanding and acceptance of the efficacy of traditional vaccines, right? So I wouldn't have questioned this vaccine in any way, shape or form. Um, but we have to put it in context now that, of course, and, and for legitimate reasons, we were in a, you know, an emergency pandemic, if you like. It, this vaccine got emergency use authorization, so it didn't go through the usual check and balances in terms of what would normally happen for several years to look at the adverse effects. Um, and then we're now dealing with a, with a virus which who's certainly in, in, in you know, younger age groups has a very low uh, mortality rate. There's even some question marks now about whether the existence of long COVID actually is there and whether some of it is just a form of PTSD. I think it probably is for some people, but not as significant as people have made out to be. Um, so I don't think personally, I think we need to think a little bit differently about how we manage this in younger people, certainly in, in older age groups and higher risk people, Seven, um, the real world data, which is not as good as our RCT data because the RCT data didn't show this, but the real world data does suggest that the vaccine does prevent people from getting seriously ill and dying, which is a great outcome. Um, especially for people who are vulnerable. The question that we need to ask ourselves as we move forward, and I'm sure that data will emerge at what point does the adverse effects potentially become more of an issue and more harmful than the benefits of the vaccine? And that's still a very con big controversial area. But I have some thoughts on this, and I'm, I will be writing about this soon. So I hope that's, is that helpful, Sevan? Yeah, it I, is. By the way, the other thing to mention, by the way, in relation to our lifestyle issue, which again, isn't getting much um, uh, of an airing. If you look at traditional flu vaccine data, um, if you're obese, okay, then the, the vaccines actually, they don't, they're not a replacement for immune system they work with your immune system so there's you know if you want the vaccines to be effective you need to focus on your metabolic health as well as in to have the be best effect okay obese people tend to have less of an efficacy with the, the flu vaccine and likely with with the covid vaccine as well if you're obese then you also are a lot more likely to contribute to increasing new strains of the virus mutated because people with yes. obesity hold on to the virus much longer take longer to recover 
So there's lots of good reasons to improve your metabolic health, even from the perspective of making sure the vaccine works as effectively as it can do. Um, and, uh, and that's where I, myocarditis, you mentioned that. I think that is an issue. Um, one thing that's good in terms of uh, from the vaccine perspective is that so viral myocarditis traditionally, which can happen to anyone, um, you know, one thing I teach my medical school students, one thing what I learned in medical school is a rule of thirds. So in general, a third of people who get myocarditis will rapidly go into heart failure and die, like my brother. Um, a third will have some impairment of their heart muscle pump function, some damage to the heart muscle, uh, the left ventricle, and then will recover and then will need lifelong medications. And a third will, will get sick for a short time and then rapidly recover and go, go back to normal. So that's viral myocarditis. Now, what's good, what appears to be the good news about the vaccine is that it doesn't seem to have caused any deaths, as far as I'm aware, from myocarditis. That's different heart attacks. And that, again, I'm exploring further. But from myocarditis itself hasn't caused any deaths. Um, and most of the people have, have made a full recovery. However, the recent publication in Circulation showed that in young adults, um, more than 70% of the one, ones that had cardiac MRI scans had some degree of scar. Even though their heart muscle pump function was fine and normal, there was a degree of scar left in the heart. And they've concluded we don't know what this means in the long term. For me, that's a concern. That isn't something completely benign. And we just have to try and understand better what the true prevalence is so we can help people make more informed choices. I think one of the problems in modern medicine in general, not just with vaccines, um, Seven, it's something I've campaigned on, is often people are, both doctors and patients, are involved in clinical decision-making on biased and commercially corrupted information, which often will exaggerate the benefits of any intervention, any medical intervention, and minimize the harms. And therefore, they are not truly making an informed choice when they take um, a medication or even undergo a procedure. So I think as long as people have that background understanding and feel that we need to do something in society to make sure that that is significantly improved, then this may also be something that, you know, we use those principles, I think, as we move forward with how we deal with this particular vaccine, which is not is very different to other vaccines. And when it comes to transmission, and uh, it's, it, if there is any reduction in transmission, it's quite small. There's certainly a reduction in symptomatic infection, even from the original trial data, which is quite small. It's not even in the same ballpark, in my view, Seven, compared to traditional vaccines that we've used, whether it's MR or polio or smallpox, not even in the same ballpark. So for, for maybe good reasons, because of the immense use authorization. So I think we can't conflate this particular vaccine with traditional vaccines. So we need to find that common ground and then make help people make more informed choices for individuals, but also the policymakers. You know, should we be mandating vaccines in the UK? The medical leadership, um, the BMA, British Medical Association, the Academy of Medical Ecologists were very clear that they felt that it was not right. Even though they wanted to persuade NHS staff to take the vaccine, they said mandates were too far and we should not mandate vaccines um, for National Health Service staff. Uh, we have a huge uptake of the vaccine in, in the NHS, um, but you know they felt that mandating it would be a step too far because about 100,000 NHS employees up to this point have refused to take the vaccine. Most of them probably younger age groups, young women, for example. That nurses. shouldn't be a legitimate reason to not mandate it. it, it I, I mean, I'm against the mandate well, it, too, but yeah. that, it, it's sort of sad that that's the reason. It is sad, and I, and I think also... There should be more ethical reasons than absolutely. just like... I mean, we're, that, now we're and back it, and to also, consensus. from a practical point of view, it's counterproductive. Historically, we know that these sorts of coercion policies have the opposite effect. It doesn't, tell, it doesn't make people suddenly say, oh, 
I'm going to take the vaccine, right? Uh, and it also breeds more, in my view, it'll breed more suspicion. Yes. Um, if, if this is, and this is where, you know, we talk about government intervention and policy, you know, it, it, I think if, if things were done in a democratic and ethical way, I think we'd all be pro-government. But the problem in society and what's happened over the years is that, you know, governments, unfortunately, don't always do things ethically and correct and often are very corrupted by commercial influence. Let me ask you this. The president of the United States um, spoke last night and he's been speaking all week and he's been saying some things that are that are pretty hardcore. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically saying, hey, if you don't have this is the disease of the unvaccinated. If you don't have the um, uh, if you're unvaccinated, um, you're, you're more likely to get um, severe uh um, sickness and, um, death and whether let's say, let's say everything he said right there is true. Do you think that it is completely misleading that he doesn't throw in there, um, that you can't separate that from being obese, from having poor metabolic health? I mean, why, why doesn't he just, from where I sit, it would, it, that, that statement is like so flirting with lying without saying, by the way, this is like, 99% 99% true if you're obese and, and kind of not true. If, yeah, if, I think you're right. I think it's, it's incomplete information, Seven. Um, yeah, yeah, it's incomplete, uh, right. Incomplete. Right. But also, I think to say it's a disease of unvaccinated just isn't true because we know the transmission rates are very similar whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. But it is true that if you're vaccinated and you're obese that, you, that the numbers show that you have a better survival rate. That is true, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, okay, seems, okay. it seems to be that case. Absolutely. It seems to be. Okay. And, that, and, and like, I don't want to say anything positive about the vaccine, but, but I want to like give like really, um, I want to give really honest information. Yeah. But and I also educate people think, about the bigger picture, right? The, the, the elephant in the room. Yes. Right? Yes. Which, which is that you eat too much sugar. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that's been unfortunate. Certainly the UK, there wasn't enough, uh, public health focus on the issue of, of the link between obesity and poor outcomes. Uh, I mean, seven. There wasn't know, the three, any the in the United countries. States. In the three, sorry, what's you, that? there wasn't any in the United States. It's not that there wasn't enough. There was none. Yeah. I mean, Weren't I was you? probably this. I was a single person in the UK as a, as a doctor, really talking about this at the beginning. And I managed. And it took me a lot of attempts to really keep pushing this in the mainstream through several articles, you know, BBC, Sky News, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, Kudos you know, to them for keep having you on. By the way, weren't you kicked off of Instagram? Didn't you have a uh, no, I had a, so I was, um, so Facebook censored me for 24 hours Okay. because I verbatim had quoted a JAMA pediatric study about the potential harms of masks in children. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I was censored for 24 hours and it came back on but then they did a new story on it because obviously I have a lot of, you know, uh, I have a big network with, with journalists and I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a known public health campaigner. So. Uh, rightly or wrongly, you know, the media um, are interested in what I have to say. And I basically said, well, you know, this is uh, anti-democratic. You know, I, I, I felt that it was anti-democratic that we're, you know, that censoring science, you know, is, um, is, is a very bad thing. You know, the, as we start censoring science then it becomes a death of science. It becomes a, the, the, it's a, um, the death of truth. And that ultimately leads us towards oblivion. But maybe that's another discussion for another time. But yeah, it was unfortunate. Do you go there as a doctor? Do you go there? Or do you have to like, do you have to compartmentalize those 
thoughts? Like, like, like I'm sure you've heard about the, the Peter McCullough interview on Joe Rogan and everyone's talking about it. Do you even go there? Like when you hear that the hydrochloroquine queen plant was um, burned down in Taipei after Trump talked about it being a cure, do you just, do you have to block that out and be like, okay, that that's going to be noise in my, in my science? No, I know it's all important. It all, it all feeds in actually. Um, seven, because, uh, you know, for me, I think most of us, you know, I, I, uh, the science cannot be decoupled from the moral and the ethical side of, of the issue as well. And the biases also come in. So you've got, I've got to get to the roots of why is this particular person saying this? Um, and is it just their own intellectual bias? Are they misinformed? Are there commercial influences at play? You know, you've got to look at all those factors as well. Um, I think if uh, I don't know, but I haven't, I haven't seen the full Peter McCulloch interview. I've seen just clips of it. Um, I wasn't aware of this plant being burnt down. Um, but it even without- made news back then. It was big news when it happened. But you know, there's our news cycle is just crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 coming back to the discussion around yes. um, you know metabolic health and but so you know I'm a single voice. I get stuff in the mainstream about metabolic health. I've written a book which was a Sunday Times bestseller. But this is you know it's like drop in the ocean compared to all of the other misinformation and the uh, and what people are receiving or the distraction from the important things, right, around metabolic health. It, 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 you know, it will hit a few people, and that's good. You know, that movement will grow. But ultimately, it needs to be, you know, what was missing you know, every day. You have all these commercials on TV, 7, I'm here in the U.S., you know, for junk food or whatever else, right? You see yeah, this yeah. all the time. Why not every single day if there was a commercial saying optimize metabolic health? avoid ultra processed food it would have a huge impact yes but that doesn't happen right so so it's just the balance is in the wrong place in terms of the way people receive information and then how they act on the information they receive i'd love it if Uh, our president said that at the end of every speech if he said uh he says god bless america but he could throw in there by the way stop eating added sugar and refined carbohydrates god bless america i mean that'd be a nice little twist to it yeah so another interesting bits of stats to to feel listeners to hear just to put this in the bigger context so 90 percent of the deaths from COVID-19 happened in countries with, with more than 50% of the population overweight or obese. Okay. Damn. So the three worst affected countries, US, Brazil, UK, all with very high obesity rates. Okay. So most of the deaths that occurred were in these countries. The other thing that's interesting is one paper that was written uh, was a kind of modeling study to see what would have been the death rates um, if we'd had healthier lifestyles, you know, close to, close to optimal, not perfect um, lifestyles. And they suggested that almost half of the deaths probably would have been prevented or avoided if we had better baseline metabolic health in, in effect. You know, accepting that a, a huge proportion of the people that died were people who were very elderly and frail. Uh, but once you take those out of the equation, you know, um, it's going to be a much bigger impact. So, you know, this was a fast pandemic, as, as a, a colleague and friend of mine, Darius Mozaferin, says we had a fast pandemic that um, hit, us, hit a slow pandemic. You know, and that combination was particularly lethal. What's, what's, what's Mosafarian like? Is he a good dude? Oh yeah. I've, I mean, I've had lots of chats with him and interaction with him and yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a solid researcher. I, I see that I N at the end and I feel, I feel cause I'm Armenian also. I get right. excited. Well, you should, you should get, you should reach out to him. I will. Uh, uh, there's something that here's, I found something for us to fight about. Um, y- you are, um, you talk about age a little differently than I do. I, you do talk about how age, what do you talk about? The four, uh, the three things I wish I could find it in my notes. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Eight. You say, I think in book age is uh, the biggest risk factor of COVID-19 death. And I write here in my notes, I disagree. 
and, and, and you lay out why you think it is. You say basically the uh, immune system needs to recognize, alert, destroy, and clear, and all of those things wane in, with age in the elderly. And I don't disagree with you. But here's the part that I'm, I'm tripping on. When the data first started coming out of China, one of the things they said, and I, and I apologize if, if I'm wrong here, but they said that 80% of the people who had died in China were 65 – were men who were 65 years and older who had been smoking for 30 years or more. And then the second group, a leading group of deaths out of China were the women who lived with those men. And I, and I saw that, and it, it wasn't a very big group of people. I forget what the group was, several hundred. And I remember thinking then, oh, shit, they're going to say this is an age thing. But as a, as a friend of ours, I don't know if you remember this guy, but you've definitely met him before. It's a doctor out of uh, – uh, I think he's a cardiologist also. He's out of San Luis Obispo. His name is Will Wright. I met him through Greg Glassman and became friends with him. And he says the vast majority of patients that he sees are 30 years complicit in their demise. So when I see age being pointed to as a, as a big risk factor, I say, hey, it's a huge correlate. The correlate's there. But how do I know that you're not just dying at 70 because you've been drinking Coca-Cola and, uh, and Jack Daniels since you were 30 or since you were 20? You have 50 years. How do we – I feel like my mom who's 78 and does CrossFit every day and you know uh, doesn't eat uh, added sugar and refined carbohydrates is bulletproof. Uh, not every day, three days a week. Seven, it's a good question. Um, I don't think we know the answer to it definitively. Oh, it makes sense, and I think if you're a healthy uh, – 80-year-old, you're probably going to be um, less risk of dying from COVID-19 than, say, an obese type 2 diabetic smoking 50-year-old, right? right? So I think it's irrelevant what you say, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think one thing we have to also acknowledge and accept is that we're all going to die. Yes. Right? We're yes. Forever. And at some point, you know, and, and one of the things that happens as you get older, your immune system does tend to deteriorate, even if you, you know, just, just as a function of aging compared to someone who's young and healthy, fit, fitter. So I think that it's just, yeah, uh, I agree. I know what you're, where you're coming from from is that we shouldn't just say it's age it should be about healthy aging and it'd be very interesting i don't know if anyone has collected data on uh, older people who had complete optimal metabolic health or weren't on any medications um it'd be very interesting to see what their what the death rate was in those people um i don't think we have that data but i suspect it would be very very low um when when dr seem says that only one in eight uh, americans have uh, good metabolic health that should be really, really alarming to you. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a thing that we do in life where we look at everything and there's a baseline. So I'll give you a really, a really superficial example. You can look at three, three boys, and um, if they're all overweight, you'll still see the skinnier one is skinny and the fatter one is fattest. And we're always reassessing and recalibrating in the group we're in. And there's so much personal responsibility that I feel like so many people who – who can, and especially people who are unhealthy, you need to, you, you need to be the example. Like if you can't do it for yourself, do it for the world. Like if you're one of those unhealthy people start, if you're healthy, thank you. Stay on the path. And if you're unhealthy, really, really dig in and do something that can profoundly help the people. And, 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 and let's start swaying those numbers because we're all basically mirrors here. We're just mirroring each other. And, and I know it's lonely. I know it's lonely, man. It's weird. It's, it's even weird for me in Santa Cruz, California, where so many people are healthy and I go into a Starbucks and I'm like, oh my goodness, if this place catches on fire, who am I going to save first? I mean, two people can't go out the door at the same time because everyone's so damn obese. And, and I think the baseline is all screwed up. 
especially what were you saying? 50% of the doctors in, in the UK, medical professionals? Are overweight or obese. Absolutely. That's why also I think it's not just an issue of education, right? It's food environment. I mean, we, you know, I'm, I'm a very disciplined guy, Seven. I consider myself a very, very disciplined person to do what I've done in my life, right? And um, even I struggle. So, you know, people who don't have that, you know, if I'm at the extreme end of discipline and we're trying to have compassion for our fellow human beings, we're all different, especially children, right? Who aren't, you know, um, yes. who aren't real actors in the sense they can't, we can't talk about personal responsibility in children the same way we can in adults. Then um, we have to try and, you know, enable, um, uh, you know, we have to, um, I mean, within, you know, encourage even the hospital food environment probably is a big driver of, of that. There was one study, I think, in UCSF that showed that when they removed sodas from the uh, hospital grounds, they actually measured whether that had an impact on hospital staff. And these are not people who were particularly well off. So I think it was like porters, cleaners and that kind of thing. And they showed there was a significant reduction in waste circumference at one year. The only intervention was to remove the sodas from the hospital grounds. Hey, worst case scenario, they have to walk three blocks to get a soda, but at least you got them to walk. Yeah, sure. Right? But I but I kind of think you can't, you know, you can't outrun a bad diet, right? So I kind of think sometimes right. I know people who've exercised all their life and they, in fact, it probably has a detrimental effect on their health because they think that they can eat what they like if they're going for a jog or after their run, they go and have cakes and stuff as a treat. Right. But it probably negates seven, probably negates all the effects of the exercise, to be honest. Yeah, I've been there. That, that I mean, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I still go there sometimes. Like I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll eat, I'll eat two, an extra ham. I mean, I won't do it with sugar, but I'll eat an extra hamburger because I think you know I'll eat for pleasure. Um, there's a question here in the comments, and and feel free to wave any of these off. Um, uh, any truth about the effects of the people with? Uh, no, not that one. Uh, ask them about the soccer players having heart attacks in the UK and Europe. Have you seen this stuff going around social yeah, media? So these I'm glad lists? that's been asked. Um, mm-hmm. I have links through sports scientists in the UK, some of the most eminent people involved in, even in the Premier League soccer. And this is being looked into. What I would say is let's not jump to conclusions and suggest or think it's the vaccine because there are many soccer players who I know, who I'll not name to protect uh, confidentiality, who had collapses or issues who weren't vaccinated. Right. Okay. Right. So even before COVID, I've campaigned on this for young pe- people um, we have 12 sudden cardiac deaths per week in the UK. So it may be there's a lot of attention happening on these players, but actually it's only because of uh, focus that's there now that wasn't there a few years ago, right? And many of these players even have underlying heart issues, like they have genetic conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, it may be that some of it's related. So listen, it, let's let's not discount it, but let's just take a step back and say, well, and, and my me personally, I don't think, there's probably any specific strong link. I think if there is concerns about vaccines and side effects, ironically, the people who are less likely to experience significant side effects, probably the group, are your athletes between age between 20 and 40 as well. Um, it's people like me who want to jump on that bandwagon and believe it's the vaccine's fault. And the reason why I want to jump on the bandwagon and believe it's the vaccine's fault is because of the mandates. If there were no mandates, I would be like, I could be less biased. Yes. But basically there's a fire on the other side of a door that I feel, and I'm going to pile anything up against the door. Yep. I don't care if it's a Ming dynasty vase. Yeah. I need to stay alive. 
Yeah. And so, and, 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 um, and, and, and sorry, maybe that's a bad metaphor. I'm not suggesting that the vaccine would kill me, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's becoming harder and harder. I want to throw anything at it to make it go away at this point. No, sure. Sure. Exactly. Well, it's interesting. Like, so, you know, you've got insight, I've got insight where a lot of people are angry about mandates. And then the, if anything, if you think about it emotionally, that then breeds more suspicion. You then look for all of the, right. anything to support bias to try and say, this is, um, this is, you know, uh, really bad and it's having a really bad effect. So yeah, that, right. that's human nature. But I think that's actually an argument to say why we, again, why we shouldn't be mandating because, you know, we are intelligent humans. Um, who can understand data better than probably most people who's not who are not trained that way and even we are sucked into these biases you know what are the, what are every what's everyone else going to be thinking are you enjoying your stay in the united states do you like being here oh yeah no i yeah. do i do i i love i love being with my um i mean i love california i've always loved california although you know i always tell people it's sunny california it's got the reputation of always being sunny although the weather's not been that great for us weeks it's been cold but I, right but i understand yeah, but but no, no, I do, I do, I do love California. I love America. I love the U.S. in general. I've traveled all around. Um, I'm going to San Diego next week. Oh, nice. Um, I'm a huge fan of San Diego. Love that city. So, um, no, absolutely. And being with with family, most importantly, and uh, my cousin and his wife and their kids is for me very soul nourishing because I live alone in the U.K. Um, and we talk about meaningful relationships, and and um, it's so important. I mean, one of the co- big collateral areas of damage in the pandemic has been lockdowns and, and the social isolation that's that's happened to people and um, whether or not you're pro or for, you know, for lockdowns or against them. And again, there's very controversial area of science in there. I think most people can accept that any, any you know, social isolation is very, very detrimental to mental and physical health. I, um, I don't actually believe that any of the problems, um, I would even go as far as to say I know any of the problems that we have that are the major problems are from SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. I would say the vast majority of problems have been created by the response to SARS-CoV-2 and COVID. And I think there's some there's some eloquent phrase, you know, something about uh, uh, basically the the equation of the cure to the problem is not we're so far out of balance. Yeah. Like, like we, like basically is, we is felt the, the world cure, is the cure worse than the disease has the yes. cure been worse than the disease. And this Thank is you. an evolving space and <clears throat> we don't have the definitive answer to that yet. A lot of people have their own opinions on it. Right. Um, but I think seven, uh, I think this will emerge over the next few years, hopefully. And people will look back and if nothing else, rather than blaming and finger pointing, we've got to say, well, let's just learn from it and make sure next time uh, we deal with this much better. Right. You're a good dude. Uh, I, 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 we have some sort of stat here in the United States where um, we have a couple of crazy stats that 40% of the people during the last two years have put on 29 pounds or more. We have some other crazy, crazy stat going on. Can you around. imagine? Despite no. the knowledge, the information no. that we knew that this was linked, that this is so again, right? Stress, food environment, lack of um, maybe empowerment for many people. Um, you know, I suspect there's probably a socioeconomic um, relationship as well with some of the weight gain. Um, as you know, people who maybe find it more difficult to afford healthier foods, right? So they were more likely to eat the junk. And then nonsense stuff that uh, seven, I mean, you know, the, I, I tweeted about this. It became a news story because I was so, uh, I was, I'll be honest with you, I was angry. I'm not going to, uh, you know, um, try and uh, underplay my emotions on this. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, one hospital in the UK tweeted out their delight 
that the staff were going to receive 1500 for their staff 1500 free crispy cream donuts yeah right in the middle of the pandemic everything yeah. we've discussed already i don't need to explain why that's a bad bad idea it, it <laughs> it's worse than throwing gasoline on the fire it's worse yeah and, and in certain countries i can't remember i think it was australasia or new zealand where they were kind of uh, giving out free vouchers for fast food and stuff if you come and get your your vaccine you know Jesus. I, I'm Jesus only 40 and, and I know I know I'm out of whack here, but I'm only 49 years old. Um, so so I but I do have parents who are um, in their 70s and 80s. But I don't of the there was another stat that 40 percent of the people who've died in the United States were in care facilities who had a 13 point. Uh, seven month life expectancy, regardless of SARS or COVID two. That's the life expectancy when you go into a care facility, and those are forty percent of my deaths. And I personally, and I know this is a really harsh thing to say for some people to hear, I will let all of those people die to say, e even if they were my parents. I apologize, mom and dad, if you're listening, to save one child. Meaning, if there was one child who somehow lost its life because of the quarantine, the mask, the vaccines, but it was to save. A uh, hundred million um, people who had a who were already in a nursing home with the thirteen points. I I can't do it. I cannot. I I, I put a premium on on children. It, it's my bias, and, and and I'm 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 fully aware of it. And I hope I can maintain that as I age because I think it's a. I hope even at eighty I feel that way because uh, I think it's a noble noble thing. Um, Doctor Seem, uh, I know I'm, we're getting long here. Uh, fasting. I think I took this – I think my, my – I spent a lot of time in India. My wife spent a lot of time in India. I think my wife took this from India. But basically about 70 weeks ago, 60, 70 weeks ago, my wife basically told us, hey, we're not going to eat one day a week. So every Saturday night we stop eating and we don't start eating again until Monday morning. And um, we, drink, we drink black coffee. So basically what that does is that's a 24-hour fast, but you get two sleeps in. So if you're lucky, you probably you can get like usually like 36 hours out of it, right? Yeah. You can eat as late as you want Saturday night and you get that sleep and then you get those free extra hours of fasting when you sleep the next night. It's pretty cool. Um, it, it, do you, at 49, people ask me all the time, like and, and most of my audience is younger, should I do that? And I'm like, I don't think you should do that. I think you should wait till you're 45 to do that. But but do you have an opinion on it or do you think it's too much what I'm doing or? No, I, I think it's individual based. Um, yeah. A lot of my patients do it and swear by it and they feel better. Um a prolonged fasting for me doesn't work. I, I tried it through different, and I think it also depends. Exactly, it's interesting where you are at the time. What's your mental state? What's your you know your physical state like? Uh, one thing where I would say that people should be careful about fasting, and I've seen this consistently with my patients, even with myself, is if you are already under a lot of stress, fasting can make it worse. Ah, right. So that's the only thing you know, and that then can interfere with your sleep, and that obviously is not good. So uh, especially if you work, if you're working out if you're stressed and then you fast um and you're not sleeping properly it can be a disaster right yeah it can and be that's a interesting because i don't have any stress right so so there you go so it may be a lot easier for you and maybe the meditation and all that kind of helps that side of things so i think just put it in context i think it can okay. be very beneficial but it's not necessary for everybody um but i just think think about your stress levels and your sleep and if that those are generally good then you probably are going to have more benefit from fasting than than people who are doing it just because they think it's a prescription to add in whilst maybe their sleep isn't that great. They're a bit more stressed out. It can then burn you out. Right. And then, and, and, you, and it's, you'll feel it seven. So it doesn't, you know, I think if most people um, who benefit from fasting will tend to feel better. So certainly if they've done it for a few weeks, give, give it some time. But if you're not feeling better mentally and physically, then it's 
I would say just it's not for you. Yeah, Sunday is uh, I, I don't want to say hard, but Sunday at 7 p.m. things do get a little challenging. Yeah, so I think you, during the fast maybe, but I think if if it's then seeping into the rest of the week and no, you're kind I feel, of having to deal with the recovery side of the fast or whatever, if you're stressed out, then it's something to think about. Yeah, Monday I feel noticeable inflammation gone. It's like everything is the whole world is different. My clothes are different. I'm, I move different. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and I think you know there's something interesting in uh, Volta Longo. I don't even know about his work. So he's no. uh, he he talks about the longevity diet. He does research. I think he's at UC Davis, if I'm not wrong. Um, and he's a researcher into longevity, and he thinks that there's something called a fasting mimicking diet, which they've shown in animal studies apparently is good for autophagy and cell regeneration and all that kind of thing. And he recommends once every six months, you should basically do a 800 calorie a day for five day fast, essentially. Wow. Uh, What's the guy's name again? Volto Volto Longo. Longo, L-O-N-G-O. Look him up. Very interesting okay. stuff he's written about. Um, so I think this is an, again, emerging, evolving space. So a lot of people are doing these things and find that they just, they feel they reset, their hormones are better afterwards once they've done like a five day. Some people just do a five day water fast as well, as opposed to even eating anything, but you can get away with it. He suggests by, if you have 800 calories a day, the right kind of things, which is again, not processed stuff and, and relatively low carb, that you're actually mimicking fasting and do that for five days, once every six months. Apparently it's good for you. Basically, um, after reading your book too, if you... You could basically, if you just ate whole foods, if you just ate clean, and I mean like truly clean, you could basically, you don't need a diet. No. Like absolutely. if you just eat like cucumbers and, and liver and, and yeah, some eggs absolutely. and tomatoes, like you just eat whatever absolutely. you want as when much we as you want. When we talk about diet, you know, yeah. I always talk about in the context of the original Greek word diata, which means uh -huh. lifestyle. That's it. Just but once you start going down that slippery slope of like, okay, I'm just going to have some dark chocolate. Okay, I'm just going to have some dried fruit. Next thing you know, you're eating RX bars and and then you're like, you get a hamburger at the restaurant, but you, you make sure the bread's gluten for that. You're fucked up again. But if you just eat just like, you're good. Yeah. Just the whole foods. Absolutely. And again, you know, listen, we all like the occasional treat, right? So I think right. once you've reset and recalibrated and done it for a few months, then I just say, you know, follow the 80-20 rule, which is kind of what I do which means 80% of the time I'm, you know, pretty strict. And then I let myself go a little bit on the weekends. You know, I'll have a chicken biryani. I'll have a sourdough pizza. And and that's fine. Um, that being said, um, I use, uh, uh, and, and then, I'll, and then I, I'm sorry, I know we're long. Um, uh, I use the carnivore diet to get off of sugar. I had heard for 15 years to quit eating sugar from Greg, Greg, and I, I almost had completely cut it out. And then the, the last step was, um, I, I was, uh, I was looking at Paul Saladino stuff, uh, the carnivore MD who did get kicked off of Instagram and is, who is back on. And basically I just let myself eat meat and hard cheese as much as I want for a month. And, and that, and I kicked sugar. It was hard. It was crazy. But I just said, okay, it, it, it helped me. Um, and then now I'm eating back to, I eat a lot of vegetables and, and fruit now, but, yeah. um, but I kick sugar. How did you do it? How did you, and I still have pizza, but, but not, not even once a week, like once every three months, I'll have a, a slice will fall in there, but I'm pretty um, added sugar free. How did you do it? I just, I just, I just went cold turkey for a, for a month. Wow. Um, you didn't so, give yourself any treat or manipulate my palate. Absolutely. How did you manipulate yourself? You didn't have to like I I tricked myself by saying okay, you can eat as much meat and hard cheese as you want. Did you have any? Uh, that's a good question. I well, interestingly, I replaced. I always used to have a dessert in the evening, a bit of cake, right before I uh -huh. went to bed. So I initially just converted that to like an apple. There's a few yeah. little things I did where I just whole fruits, but got rid of all the added sugar. 
um you know and and that for me was enough um uh, people don't like it when i say this but i'm gonna say it anyway my wife that's how i quit alcohol um my wife said hey anytime you want to drink at night a glass of wine just have a bite of fruit oh wow yeah and it worked awesome yeah yeah um thank you for coming on um Great show. I think people are going to love this. We had a ton of live viewers. Uh, the, the book is The 21 Day Immunity Plan. You can get it on Amazon. And I am now going to dig into a statin-free life, and I will invite Asim Malhotra back on in, the, uh, in February when the book becomes available in the United States. Fantastic. Great to um, speak to you, Seven. Thanks, man. I hope you have a great day in uh, Mountain View. You're in a great city.